Okay. Well, uh, I think this is the, like the 37th uh, church history lesson. And uh, we pretty much finished up Augustine. I actually have had some other quotes uh, that I could have given you from Augustine on the Pelagian controversy and his views on uh, faith and, uh, well, uh, I, I will go ahead and, and give you a couple, couple quotes here just to sort of finish up Augustine before we move on to uh, Jerome. Um, as I mentioned last week, the reformers would quote from Augustine regularly, primarily in the doctrine of salvation, which of course, um, I do want to make sure before the 500th anniversary of the Reformation that uh, everybody in the class, uh, we all know, uh, we all know the uh, date of the Council of Nicaea, 325, and we know the, uh, the date where Alaric the Visigoth sacked Rome, 410, okay. Uh, which uh, prompted the writing of what? City of God by Augustine, which was one of the most important of the early medieval, late early period, depending on where you want to divide things up, um, literary works. But um, uh, skipping sort of ahead to where we won't be until next year sometime, uh, at the time of the Reformation, and I, I hope you realize, when we talk about, for example, the five solas, uh, I would imagine most of us could name the five solas, right? I'm getting some worried looks from some people. Um, what, what, are the, what are the five solas? Sola, you got soli deo gloria, uh, sola fide, sola scriptura, we already got that one, solus Christus, sola gratia, okay, so, um, which of the five was the, there's, We have what's called the material principle and the formal principle. Now, the material principle is that which made up the substance of the, or the matter of the proclamation of the Reformation. The formal principle is that which gives the grounds or the basis or the form of the foundation of the proclamation of the material principle. In Luther's experience, he came to understand the material principle, and then when he started pronouncing that, once resistance came, he was forced to think through foundational issues and came to understand the formal principle. So, which do you think is the material principle of the Reformation? Sola fide, justification by faith alone is the fundamental preaching. Sola fide, justification by faith 
alone without works of the law was the primary preaching uh, message of the Reformation. When Luther is attacked for that and is likened to uh, a heretic who had been burned at the Council of Constance in 1415, whose name was Jan Hus. Uh, Hus means goose. Uh, uh, so um, Jan Hus, once he is challenged on that, then that's when he has to think through the foundation by, by which he's come to understand sola fide, which has been his study of scripture. And hence, the formal principle is sola scriptura. So I think it's important that, uh, since we're not going to get the Reformation before the 500th anniversary uh, by any stretch of the imagination, we'll be lucky to get to it by the 501st anniversary uh, at the speed we're going. Um, I think it is important to know these, uh, these two uh, as the material and formal principles of the Reformation, and they remain uh, very, very important um, uh, today uh, as well. These remain very much under, uh, under attack. Well, in the proclamation of sola fide, uh, the reformers would make appeal to the fact that from their perspective, this was not some new innovation that they had only come up with. That was, that was certainly what they were attacked with back then. And even to this day, you'll find many Roman Catholic apologists saying the same things. Um, they, therefore, would make reference to uh, Augustine. And so in his book on grace and free will, Section 29, Augustine said, Now if faith is simply of free will and is not given by God, why do we pray for those who will not believe that they may believe? This, it would be absolutely useless to do unless we believe with perfect propriety that Almighty God is able to turn the belief wills that are perverse and opposed to faith. Man's free will is addressed when it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. But if God were not able to remove from the human heart even its obstinacy and hardness, he would not say through the prophet, I will take away from them their heart of stone and will give them a heart of flesh. Uh, if that sounds familiar, it's pretty much the same thing you would read in, in uh, Calvin or in any of the Westminster divines or things like that. Then uh, chapter 16 on the predestination of the saints from Augustine. Faith then as well in its beginning as in its completion is God's gift, and let no one have any doubt whatever unless he desires to resist the plainest sacred writings that this gift is given to some, while to some it is not given. But why it is not given to all ought not to disturb the believer who believes that from one all have gone into a, into a condemnation, which undoubtedly is most righteous, so that even if none were delivered therefrom, there would be no just cause for finding fault with God. Whence it is plain that it is a great grace for many to be delivered and to acknowledge in those that are not delivered what they would be due to themselves, so that he that glorieth may glory not in his own merits, which he sees to be equaled in those that are condemned, but in the Lord. But why he delivers one rather than another, his judgments are unsearchable, his ways past finding out. For it is better in this case for us to hear or to say, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Sounds familiar 
than to dare to speak as if we could know what he has chosen to be kept secret, since, moreover, he could not will anything unrighteous. So, again, uh, very similar language. Uh, it was self-conscious on the part of the Reformers uh, to utilize the same language and categories as Paul and as Augustine. Um, but what's interesting, uh, as I mentioned briefly last week, that because of the self-contradiction in Augustine's theology, because the Donatist controversy and the Pelagian controversy, he had this, what seems to us to be strange concept uh, of non-elect Christians, that is, people who could uh, be a part of the church, uh, who could, in some sense, uh, be true Christians, but are not given the, the gift of perseverance of faith, and they will fall away. Uh, so where did that come from? Well, it came from his ecclesiology and the idea of uh, the Donatist controversy and ex opera operato sacramentalism, and then later in his life he deals with the Pelagian controversy, comes to the right conclusions about grace, but now you've got to try to put this stuff together and in the process uh, we see what, uh, what happens. So just some examples of, uh, of where that comes from. As most of you know, I've been doing a lot of uh, having to do a lot of uh, reading of uh, Luther over the past number of months uh, because next month uh, Kelly and I and some other folks are going to be going over to uh, Germany and going to be visiting all the the big places, Worms and uh, the Wartburg Castle and uh, Erfurt, uh, where Luther went to school, and, and of course, uh, Wittenberg as well. In fact, I was uh, looking at some pictures of uh, Dr. Al Mohler. They're over there right now. And uh, Dr. Mohler was preaching in uh, the Castle Church in Wittenberg uh, yesterday, a day before yesterday. And um, that just made me nervous. Well, actually, he delivered a lecture uh, on Luther's irascibility, basically, while right above Luther's tomb, which I found rather gutsy. Um, uh, if you start hearing noises from down there, you, you say, hmm, okay. Uh, but um, uh, actually, I'll be preaching there myself uh, in September, and it's not going to be a lecture, it's actually going to be a, a sermon. And uh, I was noticing where the, where the pulpit is, and you know, you're way up above everybody in those pulpits. You literally climb up the pulpit. And um, I'm hoping the, the stairs aren't see-through. But uh, oh, yay. Uh, anything I can fall off of, I don't really like very, very much. But um, uh, in reading uh, Luther, I was, uh, back in July, I was reading through his table talk. And this week, I finished up a whole series of his letters, uh, which are sort of like, it almost felt almost felt like WikiLeaks or something, Reformation WikiLeaks, uh, reading someone's inbox, you know, uh, because there's a, there's a huge collection of Luther's uh, letters. I'm not even sure that all of it's actually in English. Uh, it's just a, it, it still amazes me the amount of literature that was produced uh, by people who were sitting there with a quill and ink, uh, even even when we have fountain pens or ballpoint pens, we wouldn't get anywhere close to what they did. And we have computers. My goodness, we can sit there and just talk at the thing and uh, produce literature now. Not, not that most of it's really worth uh, keeping for a long period of time. But uh, reading his letters was, was really, that's, that's a really good way to, 
to get to know somebody, you know, um, be, you know, because you, you read his letters to uh, Elector Frederick, you know, which are very flowery, written to his electoral grace and so on and so forth, and then his letters to Spalatin and and Staupitz and Karlstadt and things like that, and and you just sort of get the sort of the measure of the man a little bit, and. Uh, a couple of things that struck me was, uh, you know, you're, you're always nastiest to those who are the closest to you. And uh, I, I just remember a statement from the table talk where Luther was saying, uh, there's no hope, there's no hope for Ulrich Zwingli, Zwinglius as he referred to him in Latin. Um, just, he's, he's, he's beyond hope, he's, he's, he's not a Christian, he's lost. And it was all because of you know, they agreed on 14 out of 15 things in the Marburg Colloquy. The one thing they disagreed, with, uh, disagreed on was the nature of the supper. And that was enough for Luther. <laughs> He's gone. And um, uh, to, co to contrast that with other people with whom Luther was significantly more liberal in his uh, willingness to see someone as a Christian, you know, it was, uh, it was very interesting. But all of that to say, one guy that Luther did not like in the early church was Jerome. Uh, he just, uh, just did not like Jerome and uh, says a lot of nasty stuff about, uh, about Jerome. Well, there certainly are lots of things for us to disagree with in regards to uh, Jerome, but you cannot, uh, I think, help but recognize uh, that he was uh, truly an uh, incredible uh, influence in the late early church or the early medieval church, again, depending on how you want to divide uh, the calendar up. He was born in uh, Jerome. He was not born in Jerome. That's just up the road here. <laughs> there wasn't anybody up in Jerome uh, at this time. Um, so Jerome was born in 340 AD. Um, and uh, he was born in Dalmatia, dies in 420, so 80 years of age. He was uh, educated in Rome, uh, very much steeped in the classical world and classical uh, learning. Uh, had a very large classical library, which again, in those days, you know, you, there's a lot more people have large libraries today than, than back then. Uh, given that everything was handwritten. Uh, he's baptized in 370, so at the age of uh, 30, and he renounced the classics after his baptism. Uh, you'll find a lot, there's this you know, lot in history about, uh, remember Tertullian, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? And that kind of attitude and that kind of thinking. There's. Uh, when we get to the Reformation, we'll find uh, uh, Ulrich Zwingli getting rid of instrumental music in the church, even though he's an incredibly accomplished musician on numerous instruments. Um, over against Luther, uh, who also is an accomplished musician, uh, not as accomplished as Wing Zwingli, but who writes many, many hymns. Uh, not just uh, Mighty Fortress is not the only hymn that, uh, that Luther wrote by any stretch of the imagination. But he renounced the classics after his baptism, uh, obviously sold his library on eBay. Um, 
making sure everybody's still <laughs> awake. Because there would be some folks going, I'm not sure he would have done that. Uh, well, there's a reason for that. Uh, there's a reason for that. Um, had a dream in Antioch in 374 where he is called before the judgment seat. He was berated in this dream for his love of the classics. He is ordered to be scourged. The angels plead for him. Uh, he wakes up and finds welts on his back. Uh, so as a result of this, he becomes a hermit near Antioch. Remember, we can go back to the Desert Fathers in AD 250, so it's been going on for 150 years. You've got the beginnings of, remember the pillar saints and stuff like that? Uh, he becomes a hermit near Antioch. Uh, he is, because he was trained in Rome, he is tortured by dreams of Roman banquets and dancing girls. So food and women um, torture him to get rid of these thoughts. <laughs> I love this. Uh, to get rid of these thoughts, he studied Hebrew for 10 years. That'll do it to anybody, I'm going to tell you. Um, Hebrew was, was pretty tough for me, too, and uh, that'll, that'll, that'll kill a lot of brain cells. Um, but what's important, of course, uh, is we have noted how few of the early church fathers uh, knew both Greek and Hebrew. And we mentioned there were two that were completely proficient, and that was Origen and Jerome. Uh, so that's, uh, that's important. So he studies Hebrew for 10 years. Uh, in 382, he goes to Rome and becomes secretary to Damasus, who is the bishop of Rome. And uh, Damasus is the one who challenged Jerome to make a new translation in the Latin language. There were numerous Latin translations at this point in time. But they were fragmentary and of varying qualities. Because Latin was the language of theology in the West, numerous people had translated portions. Uh, and they were of varying levels of accuracy, uh, varying levels of, of the quality of the manuscripts that were used from Greek or Hebrew, that type of thing. And so while he's in Rome, uh, there is a, uh, an understanding that there needs sort of, to sort of be a standardized, uh, well-done Latin translation of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And so Damasus challenges Jerome to do this. He goes to Bethlehem in 386, and he settles into the monastic life and works on what will eventually be called the Latin Vulgate, which uh, takes him about a little over 20 years uh, to do uh, the Latin Vulgate. It replaced the old Italic or the old Latin uh, versions that were circulating around. He began with the Gospels, then the rest of the New Testament, then the Psalter, the history, the prophets, the poetic books. And at the insistence of Damasus, he did what we call the apocryphal books, even though Jerome himself did not believe that the apocryphal books were canon scripture. And the reason he did not believe this is he was living in Bethlehem and had learned Hebrew from Jews. And so he had knowledge of the Jewish canon and of the Jewish people and their beliefs. And here is a rule for you. If you ever get into a conversation with 
one of our Roman Catholic friends that's saying that uh, Luther took books out of the Bible like the Apocrypha because he didn't like what they taught. Here's the rule of history all the way up to 1546, uh, which is the beginning of the Council of Trent when the Council of Trent defined those books as canon scripture. The more a writer in that time period knew of Judaism, Hebrew, and the Old Testament, the less likely they are to believe the apocryphal books of Scripture. So the more they know the Old Testament, the less likely they are to believe those books of Scripture. The less they know of Hebrew, Jewish history, Jewish beliefs, the more likely they are to believe that those books are canon Scripture. Um, most, well, all of the Christian-produced copies of the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, contain the apocryphal books. And so Jerome and Augustine have an ongoing correspondence argument uh, over these books. Jerome's right, Augustine's wrong, and we know Augustine's wrong because we can tell from Augustine's writings that he thought that the Jews accepted the apocryphal books as scripture. They never did. Uh, there are some people today, for example, uh, who will say, well, the Jews had two different canons. You had the Palestinian canon, the Palestinian Jews. Then you had the Alexandrian canon down in Alexandria, Egypt. It's just not true. Um, it's, uh, it's commonly stated. It's just not true. There's no evidence of it. Um, the Jews had one canon. And as early as 200 years before Christ, the Jews would lay up in the temple the holy books. Uh, the books were considered holy if they made your hands unclean. And we know what books they laid up, and they never laid up the apocryphal books. Not only that, they, they couldn't have. Half those books are still being written at that point in time. Um, but the other books, including even little Obadiah, which we just got done reading in one shot, um, were laid up in the temple even 200 years before Christ. And in light of the fact that Romans chapter 3 uh, verses 1 and 2 says it was to the Jews that the oracles of God were committed, uh, then it's a very important uh, element of discussion to recognize that the Jews never accepted those books as canon scripture. Who was the, who was the author of the Apostles? Who wrote those We don't know. Uh, the, each one had different authors. There's even... There's a fair amount of question as to uh, how many of them were even written in a Semitic language. There are some that give evidence of having been written in Greek. Uh, they're so late as far as their origin is concerned. So we, we, don't, we don't know who wrote those books. Um, they're written during the intertestamental period. And uh, many of them recognize, a couple of those books actually recognize the threefold canon that already existed, the Law, Prophets, and the Writings. So you've got books referring to the laws of prophets and writings that Rome says are actually part of the law of the prophets and writings, which doesn't make any sense. And one of the books that Rome has accepted uh, just contains just wildly egregious uh, historical errors, puts uh, Nebuchadnezzar 100 years out of where he actually was in history and in the wrong country and just all sorts of stuff like this. And when I asked a Roman Catholic apologist that I was debating on this subject a number of years ago in uh, Gary Machuda in uh, New York. You can, we've put just this clip online. His response was, well, James, I believe in inerrancy, and I'm just offended that you would actually question the inerrancy of Scripture. 
And it's like, uh, Gary, I don't think that's scripture. So why don't you answer the question? You know, um, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a it was a really bad response. Yes, sir. The Talmud? Well, you have, uh, you have what's called the Mishnah, which is a collection of the traditions of the Jews, which is formalized around 250 years after Christ. And then between 250 and 700, you have what's the development was called the Gemara, which is the commentary on the Mishnah. You put the, the Mishnah and the Gemara together, and that's the Talmud. I'm not sure what you mean by movement. It's like a, uh, every time I look things up, if it's true or not, I'm just throwing it out at you. Is, uh, is it, looks like, it looks like the Jews were starting to develop a system outside of the Torah by using... Oh, they, they started developing that long before Christ. So the, yeah, and they, well, when they... When Christ, yeah, okay. So then uh, that's what I was trying to understand, what the Talmud and those two things are said really mean and how it went to the left. Well, yeah, the Talmud is, is the Mishnah and the Gemara put together. It's about 700 years after Christ, but Gemara. Yeah. You're welcome. Um, so, uh, <laughs> Jerome received opposition for his translation from traditionalists and old-timers. It is always fascinating to me to, uh, to see this cycle. Uh, when uh, basically uh, when well it's a fascinating story but when Jerome translated the book of Jonah he came to the name of the gourd or the plant that grew up over Jonah and gave him shade remember and living in Bethlehem, he was able to go to Jewish sources that had more information about the flora and the fauna of the Old Testament and uh, came to the conclusion that what was being referred to there was a castor oil plant. And so that's how he translated it in Latin, which was different than the Greek Septuagint. Now, the Greek Septuagint was the Bible of the early church. And so in Carthage, uh, the first time that Jonah was read in public from Jerome's uh, translation, there was a riot because people simply could not accept that he changed the word of God. He's, he's altered the word of God. People don't ask the question generally. Is that a more accurate translation? I wonder why he did it that way. I wonder what the background was. Could we, could we inquire of Brother Jerome as to his purposes here. No, 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 no. That's, that's far too rational and, and sane a response. Um, uh, when you change the Bible, burn it. Uh, and, and so uh, the irony is, of course, is that the Septuagint had become the traditional translation. And then the Vulgate comes along, and it's resisted. But it eventually, over 1,100 years, becomes the traditional translation. So that when Erasmus comes along and alters the Vulgate, uh, he's attacked because he's attacking 
the word of God. And that's exactly what's happened over the past 60, 70, 80 years in regards to King James onlyism. Uh, movement grows up, and you're attacking the word of God if you have anything different than what's in the King James, blah, 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 blah. It just has happened over and over and over again. And just to give you an illustration, and we'll get to this guy later on. Again, it'll be next year, and most of you will have forgotten, except George will have written it down, so he'll be the only one that remembers because he reviews his notes every day uh, before going to work. Um, but uh, I've mentioned to you the concept of anachronism before. And it's the mindset that developed during the medieval period where everything's always been the way it is now. And when people didn't move more than seven miles in any one direction from where they were born, the world became a very small place. And so the idea of cultural development, change in history, you didn't travel to see the, uh, the ruins in Rome or, or whatever else. Um, and so you start getting art where David's riding an armor, a, har a horse with armor and lives in a medieval castle and stuff like that, because that's just the way things have always been. And a fellow in the 1400s, as the Renaissance is start, just starting to get, you know, kick into swing, by the name of Lorenzo Valla, uh, started recognizing the issue of anachronism, and he started reasoning that, you know, when uh, we look at the Vulgate, and then I look at Jerome's commentaries, which he wrote on the various books of the Bible, I note that there are differences between the text of Vulgate we use in church and the text that's found in Jerome's commentaries. Now, Jerome came up with both of them, so why would there be differences between them? And he reasoned that the Vulgate has been copied many, many more times since the days of Jerome than Jerome's commentaries. <laughs> The, the Bible gets read more often than Jerome's commentaries. And so if it's copied many more times, there's more of an opportunity for a change or alteration in a text that's been copied many times than one that's only copied very rarely. And so he developed the idea from that, really of the beginning of textual critical study, of thinking through how do we get this text? How many times has it been copied? Uh, what, what, kind, what, what do copyists do when they, when they make copies? Is it, is it possible when someone's copying from the Vulgate that if something's become popular in church, they might errantly uh, you know, remember it wrongly while they're copying? And is it more likely that Jerome's commentaries would have the earliest text of Jerome? Well, Valla was right. And modern studies have demonstrated that in almost every instance where he pointed to a difference, um, the commentaries had the original reading of the Vulgate. And as we've gotten more, more ancient manuscripts, we've been able to verify this. So he was sort of way ahead of his time. And he was so far ahead of his time that he did not publish his findings because he didn't want to die by being burned at the stake as a heretic. And so. Uh, a fellow we'll run into later by the name of Desiderius Erasmus, the great Dutch humanist scholar, uh, runs into Valla's writings in the library, and Erasmus is far less timid than Valla was. And so Erasmus publishes Valla's findings and expands upon them. 
uh, at uh, around the time of the Reformation. And um, uh, Vala is, is credited for being one of the first people to sort of break out of that mindset and start doing critical thinking about how the texts were transmit, transmitted to us over, uh, over time. Um, and so when you think of uh, Jerome, uh, there are, you know, we mentioned him once before uh, in regards to a woman that he knew uh, who, who was very pretty, so she defaced herself, dressed horribly, didn't clean herself, so on. Because in, by this point in time in the monastic movement, the idea of the woman as a uh, temptation to man had very much developed. There's a, there's a degradation at this time period in having a biblical view of man and womanhood, uh, over-exaltation of a sacramental system, monasticism. It's all, it's all beginning at this, uh, at this time period. And so, yeah, there are all sorts of things theologically that we can take uh, umbrage with, with, with Jerome, but at the same time is extremely important because you go from Melito of Sardis, around 170, rejects the apocryphal books because he inquires of the Jews, um, to Origen, early 200s, same thing, his student Rufinus, same thing, to Jerome, same thing, to Pope Gregory the Great, who in commenting on a quote from the book of Maccabees says, but this isn't from canon scripture. Uh, even though Pope Gregory the Great was extremely important in the development of the concept of purgatory, as we'll find out here in a moment. Um, well, maybe not today, but we're getting there. Um, all the way up to the time of the Reformation, where Cardinal Cayetan, who interviewed Luther in the early uh, what was that, 1519? I think it was around 1519. Uh, 1518, 1519, he interviewed Luther. Cayetan and his commentaries, likewise, rejected the apocryphal books as scripture, hearkening back to Jerome and to this long, lengthy list of learned men who down through history had recognized that these books were not a part of the Old Testament canon. Um, so when people just blithely say, oh, you know, Luther just threw those books out because they teach something he didn't like. Uh, that, that person has been listening to EWTN and not much more uh, as far as uh, what they're actually uh, looking at. So uh, Jerome is a fascinating individual. Um, let's uh, do a quick introduction. You know, I might have time to sneak this in if I go quickly and then it'll be a nice break point for a few weeks because uh, See, next Sunday I'll be at Antioch Bible Church in Randburg, South Africa, and the Sunday after that I think is, is London. Yeah, I think it's be in, um, in London actually. Um, with lots of places in between, so your prayers uh, appreciated. Tuesday night, by the way, please don't forget, debate in Birmingham, um, not, not Alabama uh, either. The, the real one from which it's named. Uh, on the subject of the crucifixion with uh, Zakhar Hussein. Yes? You said that Origen's chief kind of hermeneutic was allegory. Uh, was Jerome more of a literalist than, than uh, Origen? Well, he wouldn't have been as, as far off into the woods as Origen, but pretty much everybody after Origen is influenced by him. You know. Uh, 
he doesn't find in him a, a, a strong doctrine of the grace of Christ. He said similar things about Erasmus too, but yeah, he just didn't like Jerome at all. Real quickly, don't have much time here. Um, purgatory. Purgatory. Uh, does not come to its full doctrinal definition until the 15th century. But purgatory is an excellent example of a belief that develops slowly over time and that requires a number of different strands uh, to come together uh, until you finally have your final theology. And uh, so what do you have before then? Well, you've got beginnings that not necessarily have been tied together, and it takes time for it all to end up coming together into your final form that you, you would have in classic Roman Catholic theology. Um, purg, purge, to cleanse by fire uh, is where the term purgatory comes from. Modern Roman Catholics will say, well, we've never actually said there's fire. Well, uh, the reality is you, you read the popes you read the councils, you, you read what everybody, all the great saints understood as the nature of purgatory. And there's no question about it. There's absolutely zero question that from the middle 1400s through the time of the Reformation, it was fully understood that purgatory is a place of conscious existence, temporal existence, because time is very important there and is a place of suffering and fire, and is a place of purging and cleansing only of souls that will eventually see God. This isn't a second chance salvation. You don't, you don't, if, you, if you die outside the state of grace, you don't go to purgatory, you go to hell. And they're not the same thing. Uh, but it's a horrible place of suffering where you're being purged from the temporal punishments of your sins, which have not been uh, uh, atoned for on earth by your own penances, good works, so on and so forth. And a number of passages are referred to, Matthew 12, 31, until, won't be let out of prison until he's paid the last farthing. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, I, I will simply refer to you. Go to YouTube, put in James White, Peter Stravinskis, S. Stravinskis. He does not like that this comes up. I t uh, Stravinskis. But in my name is Stravinskis, and watch the cross-examination from 2001, uh, where I work through 1 Corinthians chapter 3 on the basis of the Greek text with Father Peter Stravinskis, has two PhDs from Ivy League schools, um, and that's why he didn't bother to do any study before the debate. And um, just watch for yourself. I think it's absolutely clear as to what happens first Corinthians chapter 3. I also did a uh, radio debate, well actually it was a dividing line with Tim Staples of Catholic Answers on this text. I think it's pretty clear, pretty straightforward. Um, Rome really struggles to have to work through the text directly in the presence of anybody who actually, can actually read the text itself. And then 2 Maccabees chapter 12 verses 39 through 45, that's where the Apocrypha thing with Luther comes in is they will refer to 2 Maccabees, which can't have anything to do with purgatory whatsoever because it's a story about Jews uh, who died in battle and as they were caring for their bodies found that they're all carrying these little idols under their clothing. 
and uh, uh, prayers are said for them. And say, see, you can pray for the dead. Problem is, idolatry is a, a mortal sin, and you can't pray for mortal sins uh, because you can't get because someone who's committed mortal sin doesn't go to purgatory in the first place. So it, it just it, it can't have anything to do with purgatory. But people keep making reference to it, and and so 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 there you go. Um, it took many many centuries of degradation from biblical categories for the various lines to develop that will eventually come together to form the concept of purgatory. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, who we have met before, is not one of our favorite theologians, uh, felt that after death, uncompleted penances would have to be completed, but he did not for, refer to a place called purgatory. So you, you have the first idea, the idea of penances needing to be completed, where you get that, but, so you get that, but you don't have it. You don't have then the conclusion of that, and that's going to happen in such such places. How it's supposed to happen? Um, it, it it develops bit by bit. Origen, we know, felt that even the pains of hell would not be eternal. Uh, even Satan's going to be redeemed in Origen's uh, perspective, which lessened the necessity of dealing with specifics about purgatory. Ambrose spoke of prayers to the dead. There were prayers to the dead in the early church, but initially these prayers to the dead were for what's called refrigerium, for which we get refrigerator. Uh, refrigerium was a place of refreshment. So initially prayers to the dead were not for the idea of them being released from suffering or something like that, but that they would have refreshment, that they would uh, receive God's grace. Um, uh, Augustine uh, likewise had some uh, idea of purgation after death, uh, but the nature of it, it wasn't like there was a place. Uh, exactly how that worked, again, conflict of the Donatist and Pelagian controversies. Um, the actual term itself does not, does not appear for the first five, six hundred years. Um, but over time, it does eventually develop, but primarily under the influence of Gregory the Great, the first great medieval pope, as we will meet in, uh, in a few weeks. Um, and he really gets things started, even though even he does not have a fully developed uh, doctrine of purgatory that really does not come into existence until the middle of the 15th century. Um, it, it takes quite some time for that to, to, to come into existence. So we see the beginnings of it in this time period, but it's in fragmentary illusions that are going to have to come together. Uh, under some interesting circumstances uh, for it to end up uh, having the form that it, it has taken uh, in the modern period. Okay? So we will start next time with the final fall of Rome, the impact of the fall of Rome, and then the rise of Islam. And I look at my notes on that and go, wow, I could do a whole lot more now than I could when I taught this before. Um, because we've obviously done a little more study on that subject, but we will try to remain calm, cool, and collected and keep it uh, to a reasonable uh, amount of information and not to absolutely overwhelm you on that, uh, on that particular subject. Okay? All right, let's close our time with a word of prayer. Once again, Father, we do thank you for the time that we have to consider your work in the past. May once again you be pleased to help us to gain perspective from this, to be able to look at ourselves 
in a more accurate way, to be reminded of the importance of constantly looking to your word, which does not change, uh, to your truth, which is a light to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for this time. We ask that you be with us now as we go into worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.